Yat A, and welcome to Determination, a podcast about sovereignty, self determination, indigenous brilliance, and the people who embody them. I'm your host, Dara Blackwater Yenishye, Beshbachai Nishle, Dotsena Jenny Bashishchin, Ado Beshbachai Dashache, Ado Tajini Dashnale. So every conversation I get to have on determination is absolutely fantastic. Today, I'm speaking with Elizabeth Azuz of the Yurok Cultural Fire Management Council. This conversation with Elizabeth Azuz and my boss, Rebecca Sosi, absolutely blew my mind. I learned so much about cultural fire management, its history, and its environmental benefits. In the interview, Elizabeth states that she sees fire as a relative, and I haven't looked at fire the same way since then. I'm really excited for you all to hear this. Before we get started, I'd like to extend a big ahiehe to the Tucson Foundations and the University of Arizona College of Law for making these conversations possible. Now back to Elizabeth. She's a citizen of the Yurok tribe in present-day Northern California. She's on the board for the Cultural Fire Management Council, as I mentioned, which is a community organization that facilitates the practice of cultural burning on the Yurok reservation and their ancestral lands. Cultural burns lead to a healthier ecosystem for all the plants and animals around, long-term fire protection for residents, and they support the traditional hunting and gathering activities of the Yurok. Through this conversation, Elizabeth taught me this and so much more. I'm stoked to share it with you. So here it is, Elizabeth Azuz. There's a line at the store. Ooh, I'm indigenous. Oh, creator, it's a bore. Ooh, I'm indigenous. I hear the clerk break a snore. Ooh, I'm indigenous. I could sleep on the floor. Ooh, I'm indigenous. I hear your whispers behind my back, looking at me like I'm a snack. Aikwi, Neknu, Elizabeth Azuz, Wechbus Ak. Say good morning. I'm happy to be here. My name is Elizabeth Azuz and I'm from the village of Wichbeck. So can you start by telling us a little bit about your tribe? Um, so you're in Northern California and you're the largest tribe in California. Is that right? Yes, it is. We're uh, probably 6,500 plus members. And your area, it looks, I was looking at it on a map and it looks so beautiful and unique. So you have the redwood forests and you're at the mouth of the, is it Klamath or Klamath? Klamath. Klamath. Okay. So you're at the mouth of the Klamath River where it meets the Pacific Ocean. So you have these freshwater fish in that area, but then you also have the ocean and the, this river. And, and it just looks like such a unique and beautiful ecosystem. It is completely amazing. However, I do live 42 miles up the Klamath River, uh, close to the confluence of the Klamath and Trinity Rivers. Um, our reservation is approximately 40,000 hectares. And so we're spread out over a large area. Growing up on this land, you're taught from a very young age what you can and cannot eat, what you should and should not eat. Um, how to find food, how to find water, how to care for yourself as a, as a young person. You know, they want to make sure that we're able to survive in our environment. So can you tell us a little more about your role at the Cultural Fire Management Council? So Cultural Fire Management Council is about eight years in. We're a nonprofit, a 501c3 uh, native owned 
uh, it's run by women. <laughs> a lot of people are kind of amazed by that, that there's, um, you know, mostly women running the helm of this organization. Awesome. We have our elders as our board. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, our elders that sit on our board have been previous council members. They have been previous uh, tribal forestry department heads. Uh, they are community members, you know, that own businesses here. So, you know, we're a very diverse group, but we all have the same goal. When Cultural Fire was started, uh, we, we were all taxed with a project by one of our elders who worked as our tribal heritage preservation officer who since retired at that time. And he eventually became the executive director of Cultural Fire Management Council before he retired from us. He literally set Margot Robbins uh, with the task of bringing fire back to the land. Our elder women, our women in general wanted weaving materials. We couldn't find hazel. We were having a hard time finding bear grass that was usable. You know, many of our plants are serotonous and they require fire to be usable. So for us, it was, you know, one of the key aspects of being Yurok to be able to bring fire back to the land. Um, fire is family for us, and it's one of the most valuable tools left to us by the creator. My grandfather uh, was blind. He was a Karuk tribal member, uh, Danish descent, and asked uh, me when I was little to put out the fire he could smell. I was playing with matches while I was sitting on the ground next to him, and so his lecture to me was, as a true human being, it is our responsibility to care for the land, the animals, the people, the water, the air. Everything that lives here are our brothers and sisters, and we don't have a right to harm them by being reckless with fire. So when I was asked to go help Margo with fire, I was extremely excited because my father's goal was to be able to stand in the forest and look in either direction as far as his eye could see without brush, uh, dead trees, without things basically, you know, hindering his vision. So it's, it's been really great for me to be able to work with a tool that I was trained to work with as a young person. Uh, fire doesn't just keep us warm, it cooks our food, it protects our hunting grounds and our gathering grounds, it protects our homes, you know, it protects environments if it's used in the right way. Thank you so much for sharing all of those pieces of that story. It sounds like you've had such um, good and important mentorship and just these voices that you carry with you that gave you these lessons and these ideas of how to move through the world in a good way. Those are the foundational experiences that can lead you to a life like you're living now that are just so special and important. And I really appreciate you sharing it. Thank you. Okay, so I've tried to educate myself a bit on, you know, what what a cultural burn is, and um, it's not something that I'm super familiar with, and I think a lot of the listeners won't be super familiar with it. And so, can you can you kind of describe, like, when you take a crew out, when you're going out to do the work, like, what is it exactly? that you're doing? What are you trying to accomplish? And, and when you do a burn, how is that done? And, you know, how do you, how do you, I guess, how do you control something that 
I think when most people think about fire, they think about like these wildfires that are like all you're trying to do, all these fire crews are trying to do is contain them and control them. And, and it's, you know, this scary thing that needs to be extinguished as soon as possible. And so it really seems it backwards to how I guess most Americans think about fire, that you would actually burn something on purpose and create fire on purpose. So, so what are the goals? What are you doing? And, and what, what are your methods of uh, utilizing fire in a good way? Absolutely. Um, for me, one of the most important aspects of what we do is uh, before we walk out into a unit, or actually when we walk out into a unit, that unit has been fully prepped our crews, our fires, uh, fuels reduction crew goes out, they put in hand lines, they mitigate any possible uh, crowning fires. We limb up all the trees, you know, we clear as much as we can from an environment before we actually go into it. We have ethnobotanists that go out and tour our sites. They look at all the native plants, they gather native seeds, they photograph before, during and after a burn. And then they go back and replant it afterwards. You know, that's a key piece to our restoration of our environment. We have, um, you know, many people in our organization that spend time on the ground, you know, following the weather, tracking what it's going to be like. Are we going to be able to pull off a burn? Are we going to get a good window or not? So for us, you know, we plan all year long for two burns. We burn in the spring and in the fall. The hazel materials that we burn, the hazel sticks, are basically the skeletons or the frames of our baskets. So um, our women, women needed hazel for baby baskets, for cooking baskets, for ceremonial caps, for, you know, just so many things, baby rattles, things like this, you know, different materials are required for each plant or for each, uh, you know, basket. For me, the key piece to this is, you know, after we're done with all the prep, all the permits are in place, the air quality, the burn permits, we have a burn boss on hand, we have everything we need, you know, then uh, we start training the participants. Their training basically consists of how to use all the tools safely, how to use the engines, the pumps, the water tender, anything and everything we may need. Um, yeah, so once, you know, we have all those pieces done, we'll spend the first two days of a training exchange basically acclimating everyone to each other and to their equipment. Once we're all used to each other and we know what we're going to do, we're going to do a field trip out into that unit and we're going to show them what our uh, subsistence plants, what our foods, our medicines look like, what our basket materials look like. We're going to talk to them about the intensity of the heat that needs to be used to make each one of those things viable for us. You know, a lot of this, we're blessed to have grad students come out and work with us all the time, which is completely amazing because they carry knowledge that some of us don't, but then we carry traditional ecological knowledge, which is something they're not exposed to in their environment. So when you combine those things, you're able to pull off a very safe, um, healthy prescribed burn. We call ours cultural burns because we are burning for cultural materials. You know, we're burning for our food, we're burning for our medicine, we're burning for our basket materials. We're burning to teach our young people how to maintain and restore our environment. 
uh, we're burning to protect our elders, to protect their homes, to make sure they're safe. Um, in the process, our younger crew members, our ethnobotanists and such, will go out into those properties with those landowners and show them what they have in their environment. You know, a lot of people thought they had to travel a great distance to find some of the things they need, but after we've burned in their property, they've been able to find a lot of it right there in their own backyard. I had no idea that all of, one, all of the prep that goes into it, this, a cultural burn, but two, everything that comes out of it. Um, again, I think the kind of blanket ideas people have about fire is just that it destroys. But what you're describing here is really just such an educational experience for, I'm guessing, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people, every burn that you do. Um, you're describing, mm -hmm. you know, cultivating safety for people, you know, doing something, an act of kindness for your elders, an act of care for people, um, as well as really cultivating life for the medicines and food that, that cultivate life for the people, you know, for much, much longer than after the burn. So it really spreads so far. And it's, it seems like even just one burn creates a ripple effect in so many people's lives. Absolutely. Um, we have, well, I should say Margot, our executive director, is one of the founders of the Indigenous Peoples Burning Network, where we reach out to tribes across the United States and other countries, actually, to um, help them get their burning rights back, to help them track their stories of, you know, how they used to burn and maintain their lands. Because, you know, when, as my son loves to call them, the, con the colonizers arrived, you know, they thought they had found this beautiful, amazing park in the middle of nowhere that was just gorgeous and pristine. It didn't get that way by itself. You know, it was maintained by the indigenous peoples that lived on those lands. You know, they cared for their environment. They cared for their hunting grounds. They cared for where their food came from. And just because no one saw us doing that does not mean that we were not doing it all across the country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to ask about burning rights. So you mentioned that there's permitting process, which I imagine there's multiple levels of that permitting process. So what, if we're talking about kind of this bundle of rights, um, what exactly, it, what kind of rights do you need to collect in order to do a burn or permissions or what have you? Yeah, it, um... Actually, it's more restrictive for an indigenous group to burn uh, in their environment than it is for anyone else, to be honest. Uh, for me, I do permitting, well, a piece of the permitting, I should say. I do the air quality permits through the Yurok tribe. I do the air quality permits through Humboldt County. I work with NOAA to track the weather, to see when our burn windows are gonna be, when we're gonna get a good burn. I work with the burn boss who writes all the burn plans and all those burn plans have to match all of our other plans so that we're all able to look at this burn plan, realize we're all on the same page, all of the equipment that we need to make that happen, the bodies that we need to make that equipment work. Everything has to be in place. There's not one thing that we do that is set out to jeopardize any one entity for any reason. 
But if I don't have all those permits in place, Cal Fire can come out here and say, yeah, you guys, everything looks great. Everything's ready to go, but you're missing this piece in your permit. So we're going to shut you down. You know, we live in a state responsibility area, uh, whereas the Hoopa tribe is managed by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, the Yurok tribe and the Karuk tribes are in state responsibility areas, which means that CAL FIRE is our governing body for fire. So we work hand in hand with them. Uh, Cultural Fire actually was really blessed to get close to a million dollar grant from CAL FIRE to work on uh, the 169 corridor in our reservation, which historically was just inundated with arson. You know, when we first started out, the arsons were 80 plus a year. Um, after a couple of years, they went down to 60. And after a few more years, they went down to, you know, 20. And now we're down to one or two a year. So we've been able to work with our community members, um, non-community members, and explain to them, you know, that arson isn't our way. It's not who we are. It's not how we restore our land. And after talking with a lot of them, they're really upset at, the government's control of our being, of our land, of who we are. And that was their only way of fighting what they thought was holding them back, was to burn. But, you know, we have elders that are extremely vulnerable. We have elders that have thousands of years of their family's regalia, baskets and, you know, dresses and things that cannot be replaced. Those elders are long gone. There is no way to replace any of those things. So that's why we're so protective over our elders. You know, they carry our history. They carry our knowledge, our stories. They know who we are. And if we as younger people don't sit down with them and have these valuable conversations right now, we could lose so much. And that's why, you know, we sit down with other tribes that have been, you know, exposed to colonization much longer than we have. And, you know, ask them to sit down with their elders, talk with your elders, ask them if they remember anything at all about, you know, how they used to maintain their land and how they used fire. And so it's been really interesting, you know, we're working with the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe right now, and they're kind of sitting on the fence deciding whether they really want to do this. They know they want to bring uh, fire back to their landscape, they know that they really need to do that, but you know, the permitting process is what holds everybody back. You know, no one in a sovereign nation wants to feel like they have to go to another government and ask permission to take care of their own ancestral territory. That gives me chills to hear all of that. And it really, it really seems like such a beautiful, metaphor and how everything just sort of weaves together um i'm thinking like just this fire and this passion that so many indigenous activists feel right now about you know there's just such anger and i think it's that same anger that you're talking about leads people in your area to these acts of arson that there's just this frustration and I imagine specifically, if you can pinpoint that frustration to fire in your area, um, it's that it was actually outlawed, right? Cultural burns were on the books in California and other places that indigenous peoples were not allowed to burn at all. Is that correct? It is correct. We could have been shot or hung or God knows what, 
Um, you know, it was in our, our executive director Margot's grandmother's time that people were shot for that, you know. Um, it was in my grandparents' time that, you know, basically I was taught as a young person that our elders didn't believe that the Forest Service or CAL FIRE or any other governing agency would shoot a child. And so that's why a lot of the younger generation was taught to burn because they honestly kill our children. And so I remember my grandfather telling me, I think I was probably about eight or nine at the time when he said, you know, if you see a green or a red truck, you run, you know, you take off running into the woods and you hide. You know, and I didn't understand what that meant until I got older and started to piece everything together and realized that, you know, I needed to run to save my life. You know, and that was that was something really hard to have to hear from an elder, you know, that they could have uh, suffered at the hands of a government agency who thought that we were incapable of taking care of our land so that we had to be basically eliminated for them to be able to, you know, control us. You know, for us, um, I've burned all my life, even though we were in a fire seclusion, you know, we're an hour and a half from any city. So basically they tell you when you call for an emergency, it could take an hour, two hours to get there. You have to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. We all know that, you know, growing up, we all knew that we were responsible for our own selves. And so the other piece to that is you tell us we're responsible for ourselves, we have to care for ourselves, but we're not able to restore our environment because you don't think we're capable of doing that. You know, that, that was a huge piece for me that really made me realize that, yeah, you want to control us and you want us to be where you want us to be, but you only want us to be able to do certain things. It's almost like we're children, you know, you're, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but children are to be seen and not heard. Mm. Well, you know, that's kind of how we felt as indigenous people. You know, we were here, we were being seen, but we were not allowed to be heard. Yeah, and that really fits in with this very old and larger narrative that we see in indigenous law, um, going all the way back to the very, very first Supreme Court cases that called us wards of the state. And, you know, these are still good laws. Um, and I'm, you know, doing air quotes around that good law today that, uh, that we are as indigenous people, you know, we're wards, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys know what's going on with Britney Spears, but it almost seems like sort of the same thing of like, we're, we are, less than as indigenous people, we cannot be trusted to sign documents or, you know, make decisions that, uh, that benefit us. It's, and Rebecca, I would, I would love to hear you speak more and, you know, flesh out this bridge that I'm trying to make here, but it's just that it's such an old idea from the very beginning that indigenous peoples are incompetent to care for anything that's important. And so the United States benevolently is going to do that for us and take care of these important things for us on our behalf, even though, as we've seen, that really isn't benefiting anybody. So the, the comment I wanna make, it really relates to that whole idea, I think of cultural sovereignty. And Elizabeth, it sounds as though the community that you came from and the people that you came from had always exercised the traditional part of 
care for that forest area and the knowledge of the fire. Um, but it was like invisible to the external world in part because they don't recognize tribal sovereignty as equivalent in the political sense because of that disabling yeah um but also because their paternalism right that they felt that they had the right to quote unquote manage that area but they failed at it and so if i'm understanding correctly the the more recent reconfiguration of of your cultural sovereignty into this organization was seen as maybe more of a social movement than a sovereignty movement, but it is to be understood by at least our audience as an indigenous sovereignty movement. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, basically, um, you know, I, I have been exposed to other tribes, but they're mostly, you know, our tribes locally here, and we're all very similar in the sense of our um, our ceremonies, you know, our world renewal ceremonies, our healing ceremonies. So fire has always been a piece of our life. You know, we have uh, medicine fires that are lit a certain amount of time before we go into ceremony that original fire that's lit is carried down a mountain into our ceremonial grounds and it's maintained that entire 10 days of that ceremony. You know, uh, the uh, Hupa tribe currently is in the middle of their world renewal ceremony. It's 10 days, comes down from the top of a mountain with the fire, goes down into every village, they dance, they pray, they renew their world. You know, Yurok's, Karuk's, we all do the same thing. You know, Fire is an integral part of who we are as, you know, indigenous people. Like I said, it keeps us warm, it cooks our food, it cleans our environment, it protects us as people. You know, I couldn't uh, imagine my life without having been exposed to all of the teachings from my elders and from, you know, my relatives, my own age, even, you know, we've all been exposed to, uh, you know, I'm the first generation of my family that did not get sent to a boarding school. So it was really kind of an age in the 60s, you know, growing up where, you know, the fear of being taken was still there. You know, the fear of them coming and taking you away and, you know, telling your family that they didn't know how to raise a responsible human being. And so we have to take them away and retrain them, you know, that type of a thing. Those things were great fears for me as a child because, you know, I had relatives that came back from boarding schools that came back from, you know, mm -hmm. institutions. Uh, one of my uncles had tuberculosis when he was a young man. He was sent to an institution and when he came home, he was sterilized because, you know, they wanted to wipe us out. They needed us gone. They needed us off the land. And so, you know, we had entire generations of people that weren't able to have children because the government thought, you know, that they knew better, that they were going to get rid of us no matter how. You know, that's not a way to treat a civilization in any way, especially when you move into someone's own territory, into their own environment, and assume that you are the governing body. You know, for me, that has always been a huge issue you know, listening to the elders tell their stories about what happened to them. Uh, Graham was nearly 101 when she passed away. 
and all of her stories about seeing trains and seeing cars for the first time and seeing a plane for the first time, you know, and all of the things that happened to her when she was young and sent away to boarding school. You know, when she graduated, they dropped her out of the school in Southern California and said, okay, you're on your own. You know, and this little tiny person had to find her way back to our reservation somewhere she hadn't been since she was a child. And she basically worked her way in fields all the way from Southern California back to Northern California, um, where she met a very tall, handsome German police officer. And he really felt for her story and he brought her home to the Yurok Reservation where she spent the you know, last part of her life. But to hear her stories and to know all the things that happened to her, you know, that shouldn't happen to anyone. I don't care if you feel you're superior to them or not. You know, everyone has rights to this life and other people don't have a right to come along and tell you that your ways are wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. That's, and it's so relevant to just what we're, I think personally, like what is on our healing agenda so presently right now, talking about boarding schools and talking so much about, um, you know, these survivors of boarding schools and the trauma that it actually really inflicted upon our communities that has largely been undealt with. Um, I know that in my family, um, my grandfather went to boarding school and, and that's something that I'm really tackling in my life right now of how does that affect me? How has that affected our family? How has that deepened these grooves of religious and historical trauma in our family? And I'm also thinking about even fire, you know, I, I really understand what you're saying of how fire is a relative and, and a friend. You have this relationship with fire because fire can be so many things, just like a person. You know, it can it can be an act of rebellion. It can it, it can be rebellious. It can be, you know, warm and comforting and a protector. And um, I feel that very much about water. I was just doing a race up in Colorado, up in Ute territory, and I saw these tributaries for the first time since last year. Last year, I hiked the Colorado Trail, so it was about 500 miles through Ute territory, and I was drinking out of these streams that were snowmelts, and then being up there again this weekend for this race, you know, seeing these same streams, it was like, like seeing an old friend, you know, it's like, oh, how are you? You know, how was your winter? And, and uh, how have you been? How, how are you nourishing the animals? How, you know, how's everybody doing? And it's almost like catching up in a conversation. And, um, and I imagine you're really, the way that you describe your relationship with fire feels very familiar to that. Absolutely. Um, I, we, we kind of joke, you know, Margo is the water warrior. She, um, organizes multiple uh, runs for our salmon, multiple runs for the children in the school. She's the head of the Indian education for Klamath Trinity Unified School District. So we are blessed to be able to go into the classrooms and teach our children about fire, about water, about fish, about our environment, about who we are as people and what our responsibilities are. And it's always really um, amazing for me to, you know, gear up. I put on all the fire gear just for the kids, you know, 
go into the classroom and answer all their questions and let them go through my line gear, let them ask me every possible question they want, you know, and to see the happiness in their face, knowing that not only do we have indigenous people in the fire world, but we have indigenous women mm. in the fire world, which, you know, a lot of our young women are like, well, I've been told I can't do that because I'm a girl. Well, my first response is, well, whoever told you that you send them to talk to me because that's just wrong. Yeah. You know, women can do anything they want to do. They can be anything they want to be. And I'll be the first one to stand there and tell them, you know, that they have every right. So, you know, it's really cool to see the young people get so excited about their environment, knowing that, you know, it's not just the boys that can go do it. It's the women that can do it too. Yeah, absolutely. That's such an important message. And one that I wish I heard more of when I was a kid as well. I want to talk a bit more about the sovereignty aspect before moving on to just your organization and, and how, how we can support, how other people can support. I'm curious if you're able to do all of the burns that you would like to do, or if you know, you're ready and able and willing and wanting to do more cultural burning, but you're restricted because of state or federal or, or whatever kind of laws. Um, how, what percentage of burns, or I'm not really sure how to ask this question best, but I think you understand what mm -hmm. I'm saying. How much, how much are you able to do that you would like to do? We set ourselves a goal of going up to 500 acres at a time. We've actually probably never been able to pull off more than 300 at a time, and we do them in multiple sites. Um, we have what we call a grid work or a patchwork of some of the units that we repeat every two to three years or every three to five years, depending on what material is in there. And yes, the government uh, does hinder us uh, Quite a bit, actually, in the sense of, you know, they'll say, well, it's not good fire weather, or we're not going to get any rain, or this isn't going to happen, so we're going to have to cancel you. You know, we can spend six months working on one training exchange and basically have a government entity say, okay, well, we're not comfortable with this, so you're not going to be able to do this. But there's another piece to that. Cultural fire is very cognizant of our environment. So when it comes close to our spring training exchange, if there are birds that are having their chicks, if there are deer that are, you know, fawning, if there, there are so many aspects to what we do. If we see any of these things happening, we'll cancel that burn because we don't have the right to destroy their home. We don't have the right to take their future generations. It's our responsibility to care for them. So if we cannot mitigate, you know, anything that could happen to them, then we just don't burn. So it's not really just, you know, the government agencies that hold us back. Sometimes we hold ourselves back just to be able to protect our environment. You know, one of our reasons for burning down into the riparian areas and down into the waterways is to help, you know, cleanse the land, cleanse that water. So when the rain comes down, it goes down into the ground instead of being into, you know, quite a few feet of dead and down brush and leaves and duff, things that don't even allow the water to get through them to get through to the earth. So we burn right down to those areas down to bare mineral. Then in turn, that charcoal and that ash filters that rainwater back into the water table to help the aquatic life. 
You know, there, there's so many aspects to what we do that people don't even think about. They're like, oh, cultural fire just goes out there and burns whatever it wants. Oh my God, how do we wish we were able to do that? You know, we follow all the procedures. We follow all the protocols. We do all their permits, not because we're not a sovereign nation, but because we want to be able to work with those organizations on a level that they see us and respect us as trained professionals. We don't call ourselves firefighters, we're fire lighters. So we do not light, uh, you fight them, you know, we light them, we don't fight them, which is, you know, one of the Nature Conservancy's kind of jokes towards us because it's like, yeah, those guys won't fight it. They'll light it, but they won't <laughs> fight it. Well, we don't fight with family if we can get away with it. <laughs> you know, we like to work with family. We like to make sure that our environment is happy, healthy, and that our people are the same. That's amazing. You've sort of already answered this question just in your description of what you do, but I'm curious if there's any other thoughts you have about how your work doing cultural burns fits into this, what is being called like this climate crisis and just these ideas of climate change and, and the, the harm of what humans are doing with, you know, capitalism and and just this industry is putting into the environment and what, what you think about how your work fits into, you know, the idea of keeping climate healthy. And, and again, just like you've been saying, like living in a good way and taking, being good stewards. Yeah. Um, you know, we've often had discussions about this because prescribed fire smoke lingers for a few hours, a half a day. And then the winds will come in and lift it out and disperse it into the atmosphere. Wildfire is something completely different. We've been uh, inundated with smoke for about two weeks now to the point of being indoors with air purifiers continually. That isn't because the fire is on our reservation. Um, it's miles and miles away in either direction but because we're at the confluence of two major rivers, a lot of that smoke settles in our environment. Wildfire smoke is much more dangerous. Uh, you don't know what's in there, you know, people's houses, chemicals, tires, you know, so many things contribute to wildfire smoke. And then when you come to prescribed fire smoke, it's a completely different color, a completely different smell. And like I said, it doesn't stay around as long. So for us, you know, we're really concerned about our environment, concerned about the people, concerned about their health. And so things that go out before we burn, notifications to schools, notifications to clinics, notifications to people with health issues. Do they have their air purifiers? Are they gonna be indoors? Um, is there somewhere else they could be if the fire is gonna be really bad, that type of thing. You know, so many pieces, uh, play a part in what we do to try to keep our environment healthy. You know, for me, I have a 78-year-old mother who basically has had two open heart surgeries. She is an asthmatic with COPD. So not only do I make her stay indoors most of the time with an air purifier, but I also worry about the environment. So I am the president of the PUD for the tribe which means I am one of the people responsible for providing clean water. I have to, you know, 
attend these meetings and sit in there and hear, you know, why these different organizations or entities feel they have a right to put, you know, their chemicals or their processes ahead of the people. For me, you know, uh, we've been really blessed in the Yurok Reservation that we have a zero tolerance on non-GMOs. Uh, we don't have any, any herbicides, pesticides, fungicides allowed in our community gardens. You know, there's so many things we teach our children. All of the gardens that we put in the schools, we've taught them how to feed these gardens naturally, organically, without any chemicals. And so, you know, we try really hard as the people, as the Europe people, to maintain our balance with our world, you know, to do the best we can to make sure that we're doing our part to help the rest of the planet. A clarifying question. You said you're the president of the PUD. What does that stand for? Uh, Public Utilities Department. Got it. Okay, thank you. I think the question that a lot of listeners um, might have is when you look at the way that the other parts of the world have managed fire and in your location, that would be, I guess, Federal Forest Service and also the state. Um, if you look at their response to climate change, if you look at their response to fire fighting, and I think you made a beautiful point about the way that you live with family as kin and you don't fight with them, that's, that is a very important insight. But when you look at the way that they manage fire and that they manage climate change, what are your concerns about the Western mode of quote unquote management? And I'll just add the one thing that I keep hearing about climate from other um, native leaders and organizations is that the type of data that a tribal environmental department has will oftentimes include that very local understanding of species of water and forest, but the way that the external mm -hmm. world looks at, it's all in different agencies and different places. And I don't even know if they come together around that. So do you have any advice for the audience on how we should evaluate their Western practices? Yeah, one of the things that we talk about in our presentations is um, working with the indigenous people. You know, the indigenous people have been on this land since time immemorial. They know where the wind shifts. They know, you know, what times of the year things happen. They, you know, people that live on the land have a greater respect for the land and know that they are not the only things there. We know that we're not the only one that needs clean water. We know that we're not the only ones that need fresh air. You know, so we have to be cognizant of our brothers and sisters in the forest, you know, the one-legged tree people, the winged brothers and sisters, you know, the aquatic life. They can't speak the way we can, you know, they don't have that same, you know, platform to get up and say, hey, you're destroying my home, you're destroying my environment, you're messing with my way of life, you know, so we have to do that for them. You know, as Indigenous people, it is a great responsibility for me to hold myself accountable for what happens in my environment. You know, I, I'm pretty good about pay, paying attention to what's happening around me. You know, this year has been really interesting because everything's blooming about three months earlier. The seasons have been a lot shorter this year. You know, I have been paying attention to 
you know, the, the cycles of the wind, the, the fire, the way things are working together. I don't necessarily know that other people do that other than indigenous people. You know, the um, tribe I've been following, or I should say the indigenous peoples I've been following the most are the Inuit. You know, they seem to be so in tuned with their environment that it's just, it's awe-inspiring. It's amazing to me to, you know, to know that there are still indigenous people out there caring about these things. You know, for me, I, it will be the rest of my life. I call it my karma, basically, to continue to fight for our environment to continue to care about our water, you know, the land, the animals, the creatures that were here before us, you know, I'm sure all indigenous peoples have their creation stories and they all almost revolve around the animals. You know, they were the ones that gave us what we have, our food, our ability to survive, our clothing. You know, these are things that people need to worry about. And when I sit down with a government agency and I talk to them, one of my first things is please look at us indigenous people as a knowledge that's untapped. You know, look to the way we do things, you know, don't just look at us and say, oh, they're just indigenous people. They have no idea what they're talking about. We have a wealth of information that's just looked over because, you know, well, you don't wear the right uniform or you're not the right color or you don't speak well, you know, however they need to justify their not pretending, you know, or they should say they're not participating in their environment. Walk outside of that office. You know, there are so many times when I'm doing the weather, when I'm looking outside and I'm thinking, okay, this weather person has not opened his window or looked outside or has any clue what's happening in the world because the weather he just gave me is absolutely incorrect. You know, but then you also have to look at the fact that I'm in the middle of nowhere standing on the top of a mountain spinning weather when this guy is sitting in an office somewhere in a city and probably has absolutely no idea what my environment looks like. You know, leave your desk for God's sake, people. Walk outside, breathe the air, you know, meet your neighbors. I always tell young people, you know, they're like, do you have anything I could do? Is there anything I could say or anything I can help with? And I'm like, yeah, do me one favor. Introduce yourself to one of your neighbors this week. And they're like, what? And I'm like, do you know any of your neighbors? And they're like, well, no, I live in a city. Nobody knows their neighbors. And I'm like, this is the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that little old lady down the hallway may need something. Maybe she can't go shopping. Maybe she doesn't have her medication. Maybe she doesn't have children or grandchildren that can come and take care of her. But that one little nice thing you did for her today, that is going to stay with her for the rest of her life. And she's going to talk nicely about you or poorly about you, depending on your behavior. You know, these are the things people need to realize. Talk to each other, you know, listen to each other's stories. Realize that, you know, we're not the only ones on this planet. You know, for me right now, I, I spend my time, you know, cultivating uh, for bees, birds, uh, hummingbirds, you know, butterflies, all the things that I need to pollinate my food because I share my garden with my relatives. So, you know, I make sure that anything and everything I can, anything I gather, anything that is uh, taken from the land is handed back out to the elders. You know, we're in the middle of fishing season right now. So all the young people are fishing and delivering fish to their elders. It's getting smoked, it's getting canned, it's getting put away for their winter. So they have all their foods. You know, these are the things the outside world doesn't do. You know, they could care less about each other, to be honest, you know, I, it's just heartbreaking 
for me to realize that we have probably three quarters of the population of the world that are me focused. You know, it's all about me. It's all about what I can get. It's all about what I need. That's not how this world is going to survive. We're going to survive when we start looking out for each other, when we start providing for each other, and when everyone has what they need to be able to have clean water, healthy food, a healthy environment. You know, this is, this is my huge thing. You know, please, please, please care about the world more than you care about yourself. Because if we don't have her, we don't have us. That's absolutely true. As you're talking about how you want federal officials and, you know, anyone official in outside of tribal governments to start understanding the power and importance of indigenous knowledge and indigenous knowledge keepers. Um, I'm thinking back to my time when I was in law school, I went to the University of Arizona, but I spent about a year studying and doing internships in Washington, DC in the Department of Interior. And I worked under the Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs and it was kind of this bubble and you know it was like the safe haven for Indians in DC of like this is where we are respected this is where we understand each other and now that bubble has expanded to you know hopefully I haven't been in the building since Deb Holland has taken the seat as Secretary of Interior but I I feel hope in in, in that, what you're describing of, you know, being taken seriously and being recognized as the original stewards of the land. And there's so much work that still needs to be done in the minds of non-Indigenous people in that building and across the nation. But uh, I, I cried when I heard that Deb Holland was nominated and because, because of that in particular, because it meant that an indigenous person and you know this person who holds indigenous knowledge is being put in a position of power within the federal government and after everything that i saw interning out there during law school i it really meant so much to me and and it sounds like maybe you have a bit of that too of oh finally you know someone who will take us seriously and not just look at us as like these crazy indians running around the woods i'm often seen that way yeah <laughs> Me too. You no, know, I was um, really actually moved to tears recently when Deb Holland uh, visited the Yurok tribe. Mm-hmm. I actually was out filming with uh, the director of the Apache 8 in the middle of nowhere when I um, was standing on top of this mountain where you would think you would not get reception and instantly had gotten a signal and realized that she was visiting our tribe and she was on the coast, of course, which is three hours from where I live. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I would love to be there to shake her hand and to, you know, thank her for the hope that I have, you know, for the coming future for our people, just knowing that she's there. So yeah, it definitely moved me to tears to, um, to see, you know, when she was presented with a piece of regalia from our people that she broke down into tears and was just so emotional that she actually had to delay her presentation just a bit so she could regain her composure. That really um, touched me in a way because I had that same feeling when she was put in that seat and it was like, oh my God. So she feels it too. She feels it, you know, the way we do. And I'm really looking forward to some change in the government 
hopefully, you know, I'm hoping they'll add more indigenous voices because, you know, without the, the first stewards of the land, without the people that care for the environment, you know, we're going to have all these millions and billionaires running over us and destroying every natural resource that we have left to continue putting the almighty dollar in their pocket. That almighty dollar doesn't do you any good if you destroy the only thing that we live on. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to talk a bit more about these, what policy changes you need. Um, you know, what we, Rebecca and I both work with policy, you know, trying to inform good policy, trying to be the, you know, echo the voices like yours that really need to be heard. You know, you are doing so much good work out in the field. And we know that it's so hard to one, have the need and live a life that has those needs and then also advocate for that need to the places where those policies actually get changed. Um, and so that's really a lot of what we try to do is, is echo voices like yours. And so I'm curious what kind of policy changes you would like to see um, in the, the months and years to come and you know what your policy needs are that will allow you to do more of the work that you're trying to do. Yeah, a big thing that we've been working on recently, or I should say Margot has been working on, is uh, funding, you know, from the federal government for prescribed burns. And, you know, we have been awarded uh, a plaque, I should say, from CAL FIRE for working in cooperation with them, which, you know, really opened up a few doors for us and allowed us to get the funding that we needed to grow our organization, to purchase our vehicles, our equipment, to train our crews, um, to bring more people in to work with us. Cultural Fire now has a full-time crew of five, and we have a part-time crew of 15 to 20 people that come in and burn with us during our training exchanges. We have so many um, community members that support us, you know, and help us work with these things. But what needs to happen is, you know, the government needs to realize that we're not trying to destroy the environment. We're trying to make sure the environment is here to sustain us for the balance of you know the duration however long humans keep the planet alive you know basically it's up to the humans to do this and if we cannot restore our environment if we cannot get those government policies written that help us to work with the land in a less cumbersome manner you know there's absolutely no reason it should take 25 to 20 i don't know how many government offices to approve, you know, something that has been approved years ago, but, you know, governments or entities keep fighting them, you know, for the dams here in our area, the Klamath Dam, uh, it, uh, gosh, I can't remember, Iron Gate is supposed to be coming down 2022, but you have all of these other organizations going, well, we deserve the water more, you know, we need the water more the the agricultural that realize that we all need the water not just their cattle not just their agricultural you know a lot of people are subsistence people you know a lot of indigenous tribes still hunt gather they still preserve their traditional foods but if we don't have water none of us will be able to do that their cattle won't live their agriculture will die and people's lifeways will die 
You know, those are the things that people need to realize. We are not trying to destroy the environment of the world. We're trying to restore it so that we can all survive. You know, here, they need to hear the average person that lives on the land. They need to pay attention to what's important to them, to their environment, and to their families. You know, we obviously don't want the cattlemen to go under, but do you know how much water their, you know, cattle uses? you know, what it takes to raise these animals and what it takes to feed them and transport them and do whatever it is they do with them to try to make them worth more money, you know, pumping them full of chemicals and making them bigger. All of these things are just destroying the natural, you know, balance of the world. And until we can all stand face to face and look at each other and say, you know, I'm not trying to destroy your way of life, but you're certainly trying to destroy mine. How do we have that conversation without hurting each other? How do we have that conversation without destroying the world completely? That's the roadblock. Mm -hmm. That hit me really hard last year when I was, again, when I was hiking the Colorado Trail, I was up in Ute territory in lands managed by the United States Department of Agriculture. And they are, you know, up high in Colorado, they are um, grazing lands and people will come let their cows graze. And one day I was hiking and I was just looking out at this beautiful, beautiful land. And, and yet I was so frustrated because there were all these cows grazing on it. And I'd been, you know, when you're, I was hiking, so I was using the natural water sources and even just this, these beautiful springs and this beautiful spring water was just covered, just saturated with cow crap. And I'd been filtering that and drinking it for a week about, uh, because that was just the area. And I just got so bitter about the cattle industry. I've been a vegetarian since I was 12 and now I'm reintroducing, um, you know, indigenous foods and, you know, eating some buffalo and salmon and, and all of that. And I have an Instagram following where people ask me all the time, you know, how can we help? How can we, how can we help your causes and indigenous causes? And the one thing that people don't want to hear is stop eating beef, please stop eating beef. It is such a harmful industry and it's, you know, it affects us. Like just knowing that you people were forcibly marched off of that land so that cows can eat eat you know non-native grasses on it and crap in the water makes me so angry I and it you know I sobbed I sobbed for the better part of that day because it just it hit me so deeply and it's something I'll never forget yeah it definitely is uh, a feeling that I don't know if there's a cure for it believe me but I spend a lot of time uh, when I get really overloaded with civilization, I spend a lot of time in the water, in the rivers, in the creeks. Um, I go out into the high country, out into our medicine areas, and I pray, you know, that people will see what they're doing to the environment and to the land. And when they do find out where their food comes from, they usually become vegetarians because, you know, when you realize how the cattle industry, how the, the meat industry in general raises these animals and processes them, it's quite brutal, you know, and that is not something you want to put into your body. You know, for us, we, we treat our food with respect and reverence because it sustains us. But in turn, we need to treat them the same way. 
you know, we need to be able to take care of our food in a way that makes them healthy so that we remain healthy. So I totally feel you, you know, I have multiple uh, relatives that are vegetarians because of, you know, the industry. And when they do start eating meats again, it's really interesting. It's always the buffalo, the deer meat, the salmon, eels, sturgeon, all of the things that we can find right here in our waterways or on our land. So I'd be perfectly happy if I never had to walk back into civilization again. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Well, we are over time, but it's been totally worth it. Um, I want to make sure that people know how to support you because that's as soon as this publishes, I know a lot of people reach out and ask how they can support your organization. So what is the best way for people to support you? Uh, Cultural Fire actually does have a Facebook page and they have an Instagram. Uh, they're maintained by some of our younger crew. And, you know, a lot of people are able just to reach out in that way and see, you know, what's needed. We have some great grant writers on our crew, which makes it easy for us to, you know, provide the funding we need currently while there are grants available to purchase our equipment, to train our crews, to help them travel. Um, we work with the Nature Conservancy and the Fire Learning Network, which gives us access to the tribes across the United States. So they're actually helping us. Um, the Fire Learning Network and Mary Huffman in particular has been instrumental in helping us create the IPBN, helping us reach out to other tribes and helping them to understand, you know, the rights that they have as sovereign entities or non-federally recognized tribes. You know, to me, the federal recognition doesn't matter. We were here way before that was enforced. And, you know, we still maintain our environment to the best of our ability. So I try to keep my mindset that the government doesn't control us, even though they feel they do. You know, I really like people to be able to, you know, put their, put their money where their mouth is. You know, find a thing that makes them happy, find something that makes them want to restore their environment. And then, you know, make sure that you reach out to them and see what you can do for them. You know, we, we reach out to other organizations all the time. You know, how can we help you? How can we work together? It's just communication. People need to communicate better. You know, that, that's the huge thing right there that is missing in the world today is people just assume everybody has to follow the status quo. No, we don't, you know, that's not who we are as human beings. We need to adapt to our environment and we need to make sure that it's here for us in the long run. So, you know, reach out to each other, communicate. That's the biggest piece. You know, we have multiple people that um, check our websites, uh, answer emails, phone calls, whatever we need to do. We do mass presentations all over the country, basically you know, to let people know how important it is to care for the environment. So, you know, I've found that we used to keep all of our traditional ecological knowledge to ourselves. Well, we're sharing a little more than we normally would simply because, you know, it's important for people to link those things together. If they don't have all the information, then they're going to go on a one-sided conversation that's not going to help anyone. Yeah. So again, for listeners, the Facebook page is Cultural Fire Management Council, and you can reach out to them there. And, and if you'd like to support, just ask how you can best support. Um, 
Elizabeth, thank you so, so much. I cannot thank you enough for being here. This has been, I've learned so much personally. I think that anyone who listens to this will have learned just as much. Thank you so much. And, and I joined Dara's thanks, Elizabeth. This has been one of the most powerful conversations that I can remember. You not only have this amazing depth of knowledge, but also your compassion. And I think your ability to connect um, to all of parts of our world and all of the people who are part of our world makes you a very inspirational and powerful leader in this work. Um, but you're also so humble that I, I hope that you will allow us to, to feature you and to um, highlight kind of that that role of women's leadership that I think a lot of times isn't known out to the external world in these political circles or these millionaire circles and what you have so very necessary for all of us and just, you know, on behalf of me and my colleagues and my female students, I think that is it's people like you that make us confident in the work that we do. So I honor you, you and thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a great honor. And I hope you ladies have a wonderful day. You too, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to Determination. This episode is produced by me, Dara Blackwater. Intro music today is Move I'm Indigenous by Akpalu Berthesen. And our outro music is A Distance by Kale Crow. A hihet to Kale and Akalu for making music for us to thrive to. Until next time, hug on it. Whatever you plan on doing, I just hope you plan on doing it soon. Don't let it ride, find the focus that you started with and just make it through. Cool.